Thank you, Dan and choir. Glad to be back with you today. Thank you to Brad Holmes for doing a wonderful job last week in my absence. Turn your Bibles this morning to 1 Kings chapter 15, as well as the Gospel of John chapter 14. 1 Kings 15 and John chapter 14. Only one thing. A man spotted his doctor in the mall and said, I've got a bone to pick with you, doctor. I came to your office six weeks ago, and you told me to go home, get in the bed, and not to get out until you called. And you never called. The doctor said, I never called. He said, no, you never called. He said, well, then what are you doing out of bed? <laughs> Obedience. We come in 1 Kings to the time of the divided monarchy. You know those terms, united monarchy, when all the 12 tribes have one king, like David ruling over all the 12 tribes, or his son Solomon dispensing wisdom to all the tribes of God's people. But following the death of Solomon, unfortunately, Israel splits asunder. We have 10 tribes in the north, now in Scripture being called Israel, and two tribes in the south, now in the Bible called Judah. Now, there are a lot of kings during this divided monarchy. And some of them rule literally for only days. And other of them rule literally for decades. And so, as I studied the kings this week, I noticed the introductory formula. That teaching about each king and his reign and how things went with him. Look up at chapter 15, verse 1. Let me introduce you to a kingly introduction formula. Now, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah. And he reigned for three years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Maacah, daughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had committed before him, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, like the heart of his father David. But for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him to establish Jerusalem. When we look at these evaluations of the kings, we notice three or four elements in the introduction. First of all, we're told the synchronization. If it's evaluation of a king in the south, you're told who is the king in the north at the time that he's king in the south, and vice versa. If it's, if it's king in the north, then you're told who was the co-reigning king and the other tribes in the south. So he tells us here in the beginning that Abijam reigned in the 18th year of, notice, when Jeroboam was king. So a, a parallel in the north. And then the second thing we have is the length of the rule. How long was this king on the throne? Three years for Abijah. And then for the northern kings, but interestingly enough, not for the southern kings, we're told the matriarch of the family, sometimes a mother, sometimes a grandmother, and we have her name listed here as well. And then fourthly, and most importantly, there's an evaluation of the king. Look at verse 3. Abijam walked in all the sins of his father, which he had committed before him, and his heart was not wholly devoted to God, 
Notice the comparison to David. So we have this evaluation. Well, we have the parallel king. We have the length of the reign. We have the matriarch of the family if we're in the north. And then we have the only thing, the one thing, the evaluation of the king. How did this king do in comparison to the king of kings, David? It's almost as if the narrator of 1 Kings is giving these guys a grade. There are very few A's when it comes to the kings. There are, there are some C's, some guys who did some things right, but not everything right. And there are a whole lot of F's. He didn't do well at all. He didn't, wasn't obedient to the commands of God. Well, let me look at verse 8. You have a, another king. I want you to see the pattern developing. This is Asa. And Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, became king in his place. So in the 20th year of Jeroboam, there's the king in the north, the parallel, Asa began to reign as king of Judah. And now we're looking for what? The length of his reign. Now this is a long one, four decades plus. And he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. Now we're looking for the matriarch. It's the same lady. This time she's grandmother, not mother. There she is in verse 10. And then we get to verse 11, the evaluation. And Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord like David, his father. So we had an F to start with, and now we have an A. Asa did what was right just like David. Well, the same is true for the most part for the kings of the north, only we don't learn their mother's name. Well, look at uh, chapter 15, verse 25 and 26. This is a, a king that's evaluated in the north. Now, Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel. Now we're looking for the parallel king in the south. Asa, king of Judah, there's the king of the south. And he reigned over Israel. Now we're looking for the length, two years. Now you're looking for mama's name. It's not going to happen because it doesn't happen on this side. But then we're looking for the one thing, the evaluation. And he did evil, verse 26, in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of his father, and the sin which he had made Israel. When we look at these evaluations, what we realize, whether you're a king in the north or the south, the evaluation comes to the same thing. Have you been obedient to the commands of God? Only one thing matters. In fact, a king might have reigned for four decades, as you saw, and the writer of Kings summarizes his whole kingship, his whole reign with a couple of sentences, either he kept the commandments of God or he did not. Now, there's no mention of how many wars the king won. There's no mention of how he built up the treasury for the country. There's nothing about his popularity. Did the people like the king? Did the people not like the king? Doesn't matter. It comes down to one thing and one thing only. Was this king, north or south, obedient to the commands of God? Well, let's look at Omri in chapter 16, a king in the north. Omri 16, 23. And the first year of Asa, king of Judah, there's your parallel in the south, Omri became king over Israel, and he reigned 12 years. He reigned six years at Tirzah. 
And he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver. And he built on the hill and named the city for which he built Samaria after the name of Shemir, the owner of the hill. And Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. And he walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and his sins in which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God Israel with their idols. Omri, he gets an F. Is there such thing as an F minus? Omri gets an F minus. He did not keep the commands of God. What's interesting about Omri is this. By every external measure, he was the best king they ever had. If you were to read a secular report at the time, they would have said, Omri is the winner. He was like David in some ways. There was peace in the land. He was victorious. He gave prosperity to the north like the north had never experienced prosperity. In fact, there's an outside source, the stele of Mesha, the king of Moab. It says he even purchased some of the Transjordan. He made an alliance with Ethbel of Sidon. He was good at foreign relations. He was good at finances. He was popular with the people. In fact, the history writers of the time did, in the stele of Misha, give Omri an A. But not the writer of Kings. He didn't care about the finances. He didn't care about the foreign relations. He didn't care about his popularity. There was only one question. Was he obedient to God? Only one thing matters. Only one thing mattered for the kings of the north and the south, and only one thing matters for you and me. Are we obedient to the command, to the Word of God? Are we disobedient like Omri and yet good at other things? Are we obedient like Asa? Are we going after the right goals in life? It's scary to find When you read biographies of men and women, how many for decades devoted their life to chasing a false goal, a false God. And then life is summarized in a few sentences. Were we obedient or disobedient to the Word of God? What's true for the kings of the north and the south is true for you and me. Are we obedient to the Word of God? We pursue with all our heart various and sundry goals, and some of them are financial, and some of them are about beauty, and some of them are about power, and like those kings, they're all the wrong goals. We're chasing wooden rabbits. I don't know if you've ever watched a, a dog race, and I know that's not a popular sport right now, for, and, and for good reason. But you watch the greyhounds, and they run, and they run, and they run, and one day they realize they've spent all their life chasing a wooden rabbit. Their life, going around the track, thought they had something, and all they're chasing is a wooden rabbit, a mechanical hare. It is not real. Well, a few things I want you to notice. First of all, God's evaluation is not like the evaluation of this world. 
First of all, God's evaluation is not like the evaluation of this world. We measure people by so many different means, their looks, their money, their power, their success, their friendliness, whether they're introvert or extrovert. And at the end of the day, none of that matters to God. Are we obedient to his commands? You remember when they were choosing King David that God said to Samuel, when David approached and being small and young, the shepherd of the group, Samuel was certain, the prophet was certain, this could not be the great king to follow Saul. And God says, this is the one. I don't look at the outward appearance like men. I look at the heart. What has been your goal in life? What is your destination? What wooden rabbit are you chasing? Is popularity for you the pinnacle? What are you going after? As you chase it, remember, at the end, God's evaluation is nothing like the evaluation of men. There's a second thing I want you to see. God does take notice of our obedience or disobedience. God does take notice of our obedience or disobedience. In his book, Improving Your Serve, Charles Swindoll gives a little parody about the pragmatics of obedience. He, he plays a game called Let's Pretend. Let's pretend that I'm executive of a really big business, and I'm about to expand into Europe and overseas. And so I pack up my family, and I move to Europe, and I leave you, my executive assistant, in charge stateside while I'm gone. And I, I tell you, I'll be writing you letters. I'll be instructing you and telling you what to do, and I'll send you a weekly letter about what you need to do with the business. I'll be measuring the numbers. I'll keep the letters flowing. And for eight months, he's in Europe, and all of a sudden, the boss arrives back to his company stateside as he was beginning the branch in Europe and well the letters have been been coming but you're surprised the chief is when he drives up and there's some windows that are broken and the grass at the business hasn't been cut in about eight months he walks in the secretary is filing her nails and popping her chewing gum and listening to the radio and inquires where you are, where, where the assistant is. Well, he's down the hall. He goes down to another office where the assistant left in charge is finishing, finishing up a game of chess. And he, he says, well, I want to speak to you in my office. And they go to the office, which is now an afternoon a soap opera viewing television room for the company. And you say, running everybody out of the, the soap opera room, what's going on? Didn't you get all of my letters? Oh, yes, we got all of your letters. In fact, you'll be glad to know that every Friday night we break up into groups and we study your letters, and you'll be happy to know that some people have even memorized portions of your letters while one guy memorized two whole letters. And, well, we even meditate on those letters. Oh, okay, you got them. You memorize them. You meditate on them. But what did you do about my letters? Do? We didn't do anything. Not just hearers of the Word of God, but doers of the Word of God. All the studying and pondering and memorizing, meditating on God's Word means nothing if we ourselves aren't obedient to God. Now, 
I suppose that some of you are are thinking, Pastor, you're stuck in the Old Testament. Well, let's turn over to the New Testament and see what it has to say about obedience. God has loved us enough, and God knows in our humanity we're imperfect, and God came in the perfect form of Jesus, and he died on the cross for us that he might be able to forgive us, redeem his creation, and the height of his creation, humanity. I'm not saying that you or I would ever reach perfection, but after Christ dies because we're imperfect, what does he expect? Well, in John 14, well, let's look at, let's look at verse 21. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. What is the measure for Jesus? This isn't Old Testament. This is the Lord of the cosmos speaking. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will reveal you all the more. Well, look at verse 23. And Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. Do you love me? Here's the test. Are you obedient to my word? And if you're obedient to my word, then we will abide with you. God will abide with you and teach you all the more. Well, look at verse 24. He who does not love me, conversely, does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Sounds a a whole lot like 1 Kings, doesn't it? One thing matters. Having accepted the grace of God through the crucifixion of Jesus and realizing that we ourselves on our own accord will never be good enough to make it to heaven, but we respect His grace. We seek obedience to His Word. Turn to John 15. Well, look at, uh, let's look at verse 14 of John 15. You are my friends if you do what I command you. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Look back up at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. There's no joy in disobedience. There's no freedom in disobedience. There's enslavement in disobedience. Doing what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, enslaves us to our flesh. Is the alcoholic free? Is the one addicted to drugs free? Is the one addicted to pornography free? I have given my commandments that your joy may be full. No, it's not just the writer of Kings. It's our Lord who says the same thing. 
Imagine that Jimmy goes to join the army and he says, well, Sergeant, okay, buddy, I signed up for your army, but here's the way it's going to be. I'm not going to do KP duty. I'm going to sleep in when I feel like I need some more rest. I'm not much on shining shoes. I'm not going to clean my rifle. I'm certainly not going to fight. And yet I want to receive regular commendations for my good conduct. I want a bunch of brass on my coats. That's probably not going to go that way for Jimmy, is it? And yet we ourselves become members of God's people and we accept Jesus Christ as our crucified and resurrected Lord and Savior and we receive his grace and his forgiveness and he gives us what we could never earn on our own. But then we say to Jesus, if not in our words, at least in our way, I'll do what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whom I want to do it, and how I want to do it. Something's wrong with the picture. Here's a third thing I want you to say. Being obedient for these kings meant they did what God wanted, not what they wanted or others wanted. The evaluation was not based on the king doing what he wanted or what others expected of him, but what God wanted. All of us remember old Blue Eyes singing that song, My Way. It has a memorable tune. I can't read it without hearing the tune in my mind. A bold climax, a powerful ending. You remember those words. And now the end is near. And so I face the final curtain. My friends, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. For what is a man and what has he got? If not himself, then he has naught. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels, the record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Yes, it was my way. It might make for a great Sinatra song, and I like the song. But we are called to do it God's way, not our way. J. Dwight Pentecost once said, It doesn't take much of a man to be a disciple, but it takes all of him that there is. It doesn't take much of a man to be a disciple, but it takes all of him that there is. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But Matthew 7, 21, who is the true disciple? Jesus says, he who does the will of my Father. Remember the story in Matthew 28. There's a certain man with two sons. No, don't go to the prodigal son. Not that man, not those two sons. That's Luke. Over to Matthew. A man with two sons. He says to one son, I want you to go work in the vineyard. And the son says, I will not go work in your vineyard, father. And yet he repents and he goes and he works. The second son, he says, I want you to go work my vineyard. And the son says, oh, yes, dad, I'll work in your vineyard. But he doesn't go. Then the question comes, Jesus asks in Matthew, which son was obedient? The crowd says, the one who said he wouldn't work, but he did work. It wasn't the words, it was the actions. And Jesus says, you got it right. That's 
the one. It's not our profession of faith that demonstrates our relationship with God. It is an abiding, loving relationship where He is the Father and we are the child and we seek to be obedient to Him. And when we fail and are disobedient, we weep over our disobedience. The word disciple is used a lot of different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it's used to those who are fully committed to God. And other times the word disciple is used to those who are just kind of curious and not really committed. And, and sometimes it's used to those who know that Jesus is Lord, like the rich young ruler, but aren't ready to commit themselves because the obedience, the commitment is too high. Commitment. What level of commitment do you have? I was at one of the big box stores and I saw a tomato plant, there's two plants in a pot and it was $10 and I bought two of them. I was certain with those two patio tomato plants that I was going to supply my family, the entirety of First Baptist Church Amarillo and I really envisioned myself with a little farmer's market stand on Saturday mornings uh, making some extra money from the tomatoes that were, were there. I had $20 invested, and I thought, you know, for a summer full of tomatoes for family and friends, that's not a bad deal. I'll take that deal. Then I, then I noticed that the, the plants weren't going like they should. They had the leaves were turning brown, and so I Googled what makes the leaves turn brown. Well, it's really definitive, either too much water, too little water, too much sun, or too little sun. Well, that cleared that up, and so now I sure what I need to do, and so... Put them in bigger pots. Maybe, maybe they need more soil to hold more moisture. And so that was $10 for the miracle Grow, and that was a bigger pot. And so now I had about $40 in these tomato plants, and that's still not bad for you and I to have BLTs all summer long. I thought it would be a good bargain for the church. And so I got the two plants, and then it still turned brown. I moved them into more sun, and I bought some fertilizer for $10, and now we were at $50 for these two little tomato plants, and we have had one tomato. One. <laughs> now, before you laugh, let me say, it's a very, it was a very good tomato. Uh, I'd forgotten what a real tomato tastes like. I mean, it ta you put salt and pepper on that little tomato, it tastes like pizza right there. You don't need anything else. What you're buying in the store is like water. I had forgotten what a real robust, flavorable tomato tastes like. It was absolutely outstanding. So we had hopes. You know, if you, if you have a $50 tomato and you have another tomato, I priced average, right? Now I'm at $25 a tomato. And if I can get a couple more, I'll get down to $12 a tomato. And I'm thinking maybe I can get down to the 50 cents at the, at the farmer's market. So, and then the bad word comes. After one tomato, the birds are eating the green tomatoes. The birds are eating the green tomatoes. And so I spent yesterday putting up a, an old rabbit cage along with some general netting around the cage. Well, it, it looks something like this. Those are the tomato plants. And I have had an $80 tomato out of those plants so far. But I can guarantee you the birds aren't going to get those suckers. If you see me at the farmer's market with one tomato on the table for $80, you'll know I'm just trying to recoup my cost, you know. I'm not being greedy. When you follow Jesus, it's the $80 tomato commitment he wants. 
not the 50 cents watery kind at the grocery store. He wants all of you that there is. He wants your robust followership. Jesus said in, in Luke 9, 23, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So where are we? Omri? The world said Omri was great. But God said, he did not keep my commands. Are we Asa? I don't know what the world said about Asa. It doesn't matter. God said, Asa followed his father David and kept all the commands which I uttered. Only one thing, only one thing matters. Not just a hearer of the word, James would tell us, but a doer. Let us pray. Obedience is a hard word, God. Quite frankly, sometimes we think our way is better than your way. Sometimes we want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. Father, help us to open our eyes this morning to realize that you're such a loving and caring Father that everything you ask us to do is that our joy may be full. There's some listening to this prayer this morning who are struggling with obedience and let them be called back today to be convicted and repentant to turn and obey thus saith the Lord God Almighty. The commandments. Maybe there's another one here today. Not sure, just on the sidelines. Help him or her count the cost and know Following Jesus is no 50-cent tomato. It's full commitment to bring forth glory and obedience to God. Maybe there are others here this morning, oh God, who would feel called to be a part of this fellowship that will preach the bold gospel, unyielding and unwavering, that even in God's grace, Jesus says, those who love me, Strive to keep my commandments. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.